You're listening to Dirty Feet, a podcast from No More Radio. Vous écoutez le podcast Dirty Feet sur les ondes de No More Radio. Hosted by, animé par, Alison Burns, J.D. Papillon, et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. Stay tuned. We're going to move you. Good morning and welcome to the Dirty Feet podcast. My name is Tim Rodriguez. I'm joined by J.D. Papillon. Today we welcome Emily Honiger of Floor Rider and Tonic alongside David Albertaz of Parts and Labor Dance, who will be remounting uh, both of their works separately from uh, the previous season this year at Tangente from September 18th through to the 21st. Welcome. So we'll get right into it. Um, J.D., how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing very well. And how are our guests? Excited. Into it. Nice. That's good. Uh, that's good feeling right there. Um, so basically, the one one of the important things to mention, I think, is that these are not new works. These are works that were presented as part of Tangent's regular season last year, and you were asked to bring those back for many different reasons, uh, mainly because they were extremely popular and they actually had to turn people away at the door. Um, but at the same time, for you as artists, that, the fact that you're asked to bring back something at the same venue, uh, you know, because of, of those questions of popularity, of you know, appreciation by the audience, but, but all, not, not, not only that, sorry, but you get to also... Uh, rework, rethink uh, about those pieces. How does that feel? Like just this opportunity to present it in the same space, but with this insight, basically. Uh, well, for our piece, The Density of a Moment, uh, it's a really beautiful opportunity for me, poetically. Uh, the piece is about time and what kind of gems remain in your hand when time filters down, what memory stays. Uh, the piece was created with um, our background of having trained really hard in certain styles uh, with a very codified language and then stopping training for a few years and just seeing what stayed true to us. Um, so for me, poetically, it's a beautiful exercise to present this piece in November 2013 and then visit it again almost a year later and just see what's still there, what remains true. Uh, we're not changing the structure very much just because of financial considerations. We've just allowed ourselves enough time to uh, get back into it physically. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful experience so far, the rehearsal process. Yeah. Um, for us, it's, I mean, I, I have to echo, in a sense, what Emily's saying. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity that Tangent's offered us. Um, for us, going back into the same space, Sometimes you you worry about bringing a same work back into a same space, uh, and is it oversaturating? But for us, we were we were really thankful for this opportunity because uh, an element of our work was also tailor made to this space. You know, we we premiered it there. Um, everything from the lighting design to the set design all incorporated the elements of that space. So while it's exciting, an exciting prospect to uh, tour works in the future, it's also nice to reprise them in the space where they premiered because you feel at home um, and like you said it's an opportunity to go back into the work and, and see what worked the first time around and what can be improved upon 
And oftentimes it's not a huge overhaul that's necessary on the work, but it's just identifying several key elements and having the time to, to go back into there and, and look at them again, open the discussion up with your collaborators and refocus those elements to just strengthen the whole. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in both your cases, this was the first piece that you presented as a, a longer piece. I mean, uh, Parts and Neighbor, you've presented shorter pieces before. You've presented your solo, mm -hmm. um, which you just uh, presented again recently, or you'll be presenting again shortly? Uh, both. We, uh, yeah, we presented it in July um, at the St. John Contemporary Dance Festival and at the Flex Evening Uh, as part of Diversité, and then we'll be doing more performances in September with uh, Quartier Danse. Um. So, basically, but as longer pieces, though, like, um, I mean, you've presented the excerpts also before of, uh, of In Mixed Company or during the work in progress, but what did your first experience of presenting those pieces at Tangente teach you about your craft, about bringing those first quote-unquote works to an audience did you did you feel that the feedback you got uh, that the interaction you got with fellow artists helped you mature in your process did you feel that it bring did you feel it bring anything new to your own creative process basically for sure for sure emily gualtieri who uh is the other co-artistic director of parts and labor dance had already created several works of that length And so I think she she's at a, uh, a point in her artistic parcours where that was uh, uh, not such a new uh, element. Um, but for us and our partnership, it was a new set of negotiations between two choreographers. So that was a really interesting time then. Um, and so now I, I think it's interesting to, to dive back in and, uh, and continue that process. On our side, uh, we've already created a long work. We created a piece called Le Lancer du Nain that was an hour long. Um, that was actually our first attempt at creating together, Geneviève and I. We made a full-length piece. But looking back at it, it was like a series of vignettes, really. It was a bunch of maybe 15-minute pieces put together. So this is um, the Density of a Moment, our latest piece, is a 30-minute piece. And I think it's the first time that we've created... Um, like an artistic universe or some, something that feels like it's one thing. Yeah, something that is like, ça se tient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the nice, uh, the nice challenge when we're, you know, making the pieces of, this, of these lengths um, in, in this kind of professional setting. Um, where, you, where you have to balance you know, the, the variety that carries you through so that it's not monotone the whole way through, but still is not homogenous, but it cohesive enough to, to hold itself as a, a full work, you know, which presents a new set of challenges from, you know, like you said, like, a, like 15 minute pieces, you know, you're dealing with longer arcs. Mm -hmm. How do you negotiate that? Mm -hmm. um, speaking to that a little bit, uh, tied in with the codified language of, of breakdance and contemporary dance and other urban styles that David is also um, versed in the idea of, 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 those dances usually only happen in flashes right like there's the cypher there's getting down to whatever track hits you at the moment mm. so what what were the the challenges in pulling out of uh, these codified languages longer arcs longer narratives 
just because they do always live in a flash sort of setting. Um, did you did you find it harder or with with the experience that you have of the little 15 minute vignette pieces or the shorter works, was it easier now and to, to pull those longer bits out of mm-hmm. the language? Um, I think that that phenomenon is very pertinent in how we create our work. Um, often, yeah, like you say, like if you're in a B-boy cipher, like you're just going to bust something out and it'll last 30 seconds and it'll be super intense and then you're done for a few minutes. And I think Geneviève and I have always been attracted to working in groups for that reason. So you allow one person to speak their voice and the rest of the group kind of hangs back a little and you can rotate and take turns um, kind of sharing the torch, so to speak. So uh, I think that has always been part of why we decide to work with a group of dancers. We're working with six dancers for this one. Um, And that probably also influenced our choreographic um, voice, which is uh, about bringing out stories within a group. So in a group of six dancers, what's going on with each individual? Mm -hmm. What is their individual experience and how can that be expressed? How is that one dynamic expressed one at a time or two at a time or three at a time? Yeah. Nice. There's a a term you hear a lot. <clears throat> Excuse me. In uh, in, I think all the urban dance circles from from b-boying to popping and locking and and how's it, it and that's power. You hear that term a lot. Um, power moves or just the power of the movement. Um, and I think that's a a, a very um, it, it's an it's, it's an obvious underlying element to that style uh, or to those styles. Um, and I think. What's been happening a lot also in recent years, just in that milieu not related to contemporary dance, is um, more and more research into the subtlety of the movement. So even when you're in ciphers, even when you go to the club, you see dancers really working to integrate more and more subtlety, or at least I, I feel that that's what I'm seeing, um, where the power is still there, but it's, it's now also just within those forms also bring, being met with, uh, with a greater subtlety, greater nuance, uh, more complex senses of timing and playing with the music mm-hmm. and I think that's a progression that's that's happening on its own and then also in its integration in contemporary dance where we're not putting um, just strict b-boying next to you know ballet dancers on point uh, but the integration is also becoming more and more subtle and nuanced um, and the vocabulary also as a result for us or for me in in my movement research I think one of the things that I focus on in terms of integrating that energy into the movement um, is the idea of pacing that you don't have to go in with that movement and start at 100% necessarily that that kind of movement can lend itself to deconstruction and and you can pace how it's being brought in Um, so there are several tableaus where some of that kind of movement begins to be introduced and then eventually grows and grows and grows um, and then in other sections you know when when the the movement is really the the through line all the all the way um, it, it also becomes interesting to play with suspensions and timing and um, integrating maybe a more open uh, body uh, in, into that kind of movement and then closing it back up you know and, and working with different elements and I think that it's important to underline that that's not only happening when you put that kind of movement on stage, but it's also happening um, in in the heart of itself, which I think is a, an interesting place for it to be at. Yeah, there, uh, b- um, both companies uh, and all four choreographers have worked with 
uh, in some respect, uh, Helen Samard and Victor Quijada, mm-hmm. um, who are two uh, dance artists who are really pushing this idea of um, contemporization of urban languages mm-hmm. on, on the dance floor. And I'm just um, interested in hearing just a little bit about... Um, how those experiences when you guys were a little bit younger and a little more fresh out of school, how that really shaped maybe how you saw yourselves going further into the milieu. I think I don't want to speak for all of us, but I I can speak for myself. I think Victor and Helen were, were very influential um, in those years when it wasn't as popular. It's, it was still new and weird. Um, And they, they really, I think pushed through and and stuck to their visions, um, stuck to their, their own stories too, their own personal stories and their own personal interests, despite what was out there. Um, and uh, I think they, they did really pave the way for a lot of us younger cats um, who were also kind of caught between these two worlds to not, <clears throat> not copy them, but to do as they did, which is figure out for ourselves where do we sit between these schools of thought um, and that it's okay to be like this kind of mutt uh, this a bit of a dance mutt, um, and whether you incorporate other elements too, you know, what, not just uh, b-boying and, and contemporary dance, but to, for it to be okay to be a mutt and to listen to yourself and to research that, and, and I think that uh, when you look at those those two, in particular, a lot of the research, the the time that they've put into their own research, the movement research and artistic research and their own voices. Um, is, is really quite something. There's been a huge investment on both of their parts, and I think that, that in and of itself is really inspiring to, to younger choreographers. Um, and I, I would just echo also that uh, uh, Ismail uh, of Distinct Croisé right. also, who, who's integrating it in a different way than someone like Victor or someone like Helen, um, has also been really, really working in, and working with a lot of us younger choreographers also and, and younger dancers from both milieu. Um, so he also definitely is uh, is crafting as well, you know, his own voice. Nice. I think David said that really well. Uh, I totally <laughs> agree. I think I it would I'd actually have a really hard time putting into words how much uh, Victor, Helen, Jody Allen, mm-hmm. um, yeah, many people, Emmanuel Lafont have influenced me, uh, shown me what's possible, given me physical tools and encouragement and just uh, provided a platform to express and, yeah. and play with. Yeah. It's really an impressive uh, family, actually, when you look at it, because all those people, uh, they're, they're constantly moving around the same circle or the circles are constantly mm-hmm. touching. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see as, a, as an observer the, the, the real school that is coming out of that, of that movement of like-minded individuals who happen to be in Montreal at the same time and into the same things. It's really quite impressive to watch and to see you guys be the next step in that progression is actually quite refreshing. What I think is also really cool just to add to that is that it's not only the choreographers um, who are, who are making those kinds of efforts, but it's also the dancers who now, you know, 10 years later have worked with all of them. And and the guy who, who comes to mind right away is in Emily and Geneviève's piece, Joe Danny Aurélien, who's been a part of all of the people that we've named so far and has contributed in a large part, I think, to a lot of that research that's been happening. And he's one there, there are of course others, but 
I think that's also a, an important element to underline that it's not just in the you know conceptual thinking of what how can I bring these. You need people also who are able to handle those things and to take that on and contribute to that process. Yeah. Um, and I think in in both our teams now we're also um, working with people who are able to take our visions and these kind of fragmented at times, you know, and help us make sense of them um, in, a, in a really collaborative way. And I think that's super important. And I was just going to speak to the cross-pollination. I think that yeah, has yeah. happened with all of our dancers. I mm -hmm. think we've all had at some point similar teachers or trained in similar circles. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's a cross-pollination of physical language and energy there that... Um, creates a through line and a thread yeah. yeah that's one of the interesting things i feel with that that um evolution basically of uh academic thinking uh where you see break dancers uh coming into schools and teaching and not just part of uh you know like outside of the the, the regular uh the classroom But just uh, when I was at Concordia, we had Jody Allen for part of a semester. Uh, at UQAM, they get Beagle Links, who's teaching there sometimes. It's becoming much more respected as part of the traditional academic curriculum than it used to be. And you can see how much uh, this influences dancers' movements, even in the pieces they now create, even if they didn't have a direct influence from Victor from Helen Smart, from, you know, even you guys at some, uh, some extent. But it's, it's becoming more and more part of their language, of something that they want to use to express themselves, even without that prior thought. So, I mean, for you guys as choreographers who come from this wave, who use that kind of language, how do you feel seeing that now in schools, which back in your day, I guess, was a bit less kind of present? Yeah. I, think, um, I think if there's one... Uh, again, uh, if there's one word um, that you hear a lot, if you've if you've been either a dance student or working professionally for more than a month, you'll get you'll get a note to be grounded at some mm -hmm. point. Um, I think if there's a, a really defining um, element to what's happening now, um, both in the movement and in I think the pacing of a work, it's to be grounded. It's that you need to be grounded and that things don't tend to work when you're not. Um, and I remember when I started Concordia, um, I felt really frustrated in the technique class because I didn't know how to use a tall, long body and how to open it and find amplitude. But I knew how to be grounded from my previous training. And I, I, that's where I excelled were in those classes, which were more about creative process, about movement research. And I could see other dancers also trying to work with the floor and trying to be grounded and not having maybe such a, an easy time or you know seeing the way I was in technique class I was seeing them in these these other classes and I think that what's important now is that I feel that there's a, the the ignorance has left mm -hmm. in contemporary dance and I don't mean that in a bad way just in in the, the neutral sense of the term is that we're we're starting to see more and more Um, a recognition of the fact that there's a whole developed technique that exists and has existed for, what, 20 years, 30 years, um, that uses the floor, which is all about using the floor and being grounded and finding ways to use momentum and generate momentum in complex positions and, and how to keep things going in a very interesting way, in a very intricate way, and in a very thought-out way, a very pedagogical way. 
and that's existed for a long time. And it's kind of only now, in the last few years, piercing through into the academic world and being seen as something that's more than just uh, something that you should learn to, quote-unquote, be versatile or be more showy or have more power. It's just it's a legitimate tool. Mm. Um, so I think it's fantastic that people who are coming in who... Who have had uh, these careers and have this wealth of knowledge, people like Jody, people like Kate, um, who are coming in and really sharing that knowledge and, uh, you know, basics and being able to grow with students. Um, it's also allowing students to see where some of these, these, uh, these techniques come from, right? Like when you see them on stage, again, coming back to, you know, our, our works, as artists, you want to take those techniques, you want to elaborate on them. You don't want to necessarily just show the exercise. You want to use them to, to say something. But for people who are still, you know, young people who are still coming in, it lets them see at the root of it where this comes from. And I think that's important. You know, it's, it's, it's important to know that history, but also just it's important to know where it comes from in the same way that you want to learn how to point your foot, you know, or, or do a tondu and use the right muscles for it and not use the wrong muscles for it. It's just it's as simple as that. You, um, you mentioned a bit earlier uh, how this kind, of, um, this kind of training, this kind of background influenced not only the movement uh, chosen as part of your pieces, but also the pacing. And how much do you feel uh, of the mentality of the history of hip-hop actually influences you actually um, gave a direction to your creative process and not just for movement but also for a mentality of of what you want to present of issues of themes all of that uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is what I just spoke about earlier about the idea of carrying a torch mm -hmm. uh, in a cipher how um, At a certain point in a group, there's a hot spot. Someone's got a hot spot, and and they're channeling something. And how how is that that energy moving? And who's who's carrying the torch? At what point? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's really present for me, and that's fueled some of the the questions that I've had, which brought a more philosophical mm. edge to this piece about questions about time and perception. Uh, how we experience time and rhythms uh, when we are in our center, when we are the center. For me, I, I, I'd have to say actually that um, it's not directly related to the, the pacing of the work or of the, the conceptual nature of it. Um, it. It's still within the idea of, of being grounded in something, and I think the movement speaks, speaks to that. Um, but in the conceptual nature, I'd say I've come from a bit of a direct, uh, different direction than what you were saying, Emily, whereas I was influenced by, by literature and philosophy uh, that, uh, that was, for me, separate. And for me and for Emily Gualtieri, the, the bulk of the work was to then bring these our, our conceptual research and our physical research, which itself is part mine, but also part hers. So our, we try not to, to give too much of a, a, an emphasis in, in the urban uh, influence into the movement. That it's really, it's a, it's a meeting, but it's, it, they've met already a few years ago, these two approaches. And so now we're trying to elaborate on what that meeting is um, in and of itself. But to take the, the physical research and the conceptual research and to draw those two in together. Um, so one not necessarily coming from the other, but individually. And then how do, you, how, how do we reconcile those things? I was, I was about to ask, 
the, the about the reconciliation because it is very much um, a dual language that parts mm-hmm. and labor has mm-hmm. um, based upon the different experiences and training that the two of you had. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I see uh, a lot of the time is that technically it's driven from one side and emotionally it's driven um, from the two of you connecting. Hmm. You know, I feel like the emotional drive and through line and narrative of the characters in your works, I feel is a real team effort. Mm-hmm. And then when I see the technique, I can see the two sides. Okay. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it is being reconciled more and more yeah. each time as things go on yeah. because you guys are still growing yeah. as a, as a duo and, and, and all that. But I feel like, um, the reconciliation is, is, is coming and becoming more clear. Um, is that ever, let me rephrase that. The idea of having one choreographer that's a little bit more um, versed in one language over the, the others, um, do you ever see that being, do you ever see one element overshadowing the other? We just spent about 20 minutes talking about the urban element of your work when really, if you were to put them side by side with floor rider and tonic, you definitely see more of the codification yeah. of b-boy uh, culture in their work. Yes. Whereas with yours, the trained b-boy, I would see it, but most other people will just see tricks. So, do you mm-hmm. ever? Is there a fear of being um, written off? For, mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm, I don't want to be negative or drive yeah, it down. Yeah, but yeah. is there is that actually a real fear for either of you guys, either of the companies, actually to be written off as a trend? Because we we can sit and and, and really go into how much the culture means to us and how much it drives our work and how much we respect and everything. But at the same time, you don't want to just be a byline as oh, this urban contemporary dance company. I think the way we deal with that is. It was about a year and a half ago or so that we said that we weren't going to make that um, uh, a, a main focus of our of our mandate and of our profile. That uh, that it, it's it's part of my baggage as a dancer, uh, the same way that maybe another contemporary dancer might have a classical baggage. Well, Emily Qualtieri, for example, has a has a classical baggage, um, and as any dancer will tell you, your baggage will follow you. You know, you'll learn to let it grow and develop and maybe dissipate a bit. Um, but it's there somewhere. And for us, I think that's how we deal with that. Is, uh, it's, it's part of my baggage. It's a, <clears throat> excuse me, it, uh, it eventually becomes an element of the work um, because of the movement research that takes place. Um, but it's not at the forefront and we don't, we don't make a point to necessarily uh, publicize it. Um, what we're more interested is, like you say, the the relationship uh, between people, and on developing that, and on on exploring a, an artistic freedom, a, a theatricality, uh, incorporating other elements, other disciplines that aren't dance based. And um, like you say, I think with every with every work and with every reprise, uh, which was what we were talking about earlier, there's an opportunity to dive back in and requestion things. And and these are pertinent questions. You know, how much how much space is this element taking in this work for a viewer? Is that what we want um, to reevaluate? And so these are these are again some of the questions that we're asking ourselves now. I think um, one thing I'm very excited about with this new re-edit of In Mix Company is to present something where the movement itself is more integrated into the fabric of the work. And 
then to answer your question, I think the, the way that we, we deal with this idea of, of the trend um, is to not be too concerned with it. Um, to Like we were talking again earlier about people like Victor and Helen, to, to follow our own um, our artistic path that we've set out for ourselves, which isn't necessarily theirs. Not to, not to say that what they're working on is a trend by any means, but... Um, to, to just stay focused to, to what we want to explore and what, to what we want to express. It's not really a thought that ever crossed my mind that it would be a trend. Um, to me, it's language, yeah. and um, I feel pretty authentic in what I have to say with that language. Yeah. It feels like it's a part of me, and it's my vocabulary, and that vocabulary is developing, and uh, Geneviève and I are not interested either in, in defining our mandate as, as bringing these two worlds together. I think it just happens out of our history and our experience together. Um, so I hope that that is what is being communicated through our work, is, is the message behind it and what we have to say um, in this case about time and relationships. Yeah. Yeah. To sort of continue on what Tim was asking about, I think one of the biggest issues or one of the biggest difficulties for artists who come from uh, a background such as yourselves is presenters' attitudes and the need quite often for classification that they're going to have. Um, and in a way, you can almost see it in this, uh, this double program with you two because there are strong elements tying you together, even though there are Uh, there's quite a bit of dissonance also in the two pieces. Mm -hmm. Thematically, it's it's quite different. But the fact is that Entangente is quite often very open when it comes to classification, uh, unlike some others. Do you feel that this is something you've seen uh, applying to other festivals, to other presenters? The, the The fact that they need to tag things as a certain way, and do you feel, if if so, do you feel that this is something that can be limiting? Would you rather just let the work speak for itself rather than have labels imposed? I think every artist wants their work to speak for itself. <laughs> and I don't think any artist really wants to be categorized that much. And I think that that applies to visual arts, music, you name it. Um, I also think it's the artist's responsibility to keep that at arm's length. It's going to happen, and I think people need that. You know, there Different people are involved in, in the meeting between the artist and the audience. And audiences need to feel like they they have a sense of what they're going to. And, and I think presenters need to also, in a sense, um, pair things in a certain way. And, and that's the art of presenting is the art of presenting. It's an art in and of itself mm -hmm. to, to see things and to see. Um, it's like a DJ to, to see um, parallels between works that the artist might not see um, and might not agree with in some cases, you know, but... In a sense, that's uh, that's beside the point. You know, the I think the the job of the pre presenter is to present a well articulated season, and in order to do that, they need to create themes, um, or they can create themes. You know, I think it's it's a very valid tool. Um, so I, I don't I don't have anything to say against that. I mean, I think that's that's part of what makes this thing special is that we art artists should not think in terms of those terms. I think when you're making work, I don't think you should think in terms of how will this fit into a season or what theme can this be paired? You know, don't be a presenter when you're being an artist, make your work and stay true to it. Like Emily was saying, you know, stay true to what your voice and what you have to say. Um, 
I think the the presenter comes in and, and yeah sees sees parallels and tries to do the best that they can with pairing works together. I think Tangent's done a great job by pairing our two works together because I don't think they should always be the same thing. I think there should be elements that are similar. And like you said, JD, a bit of dissonance helps, you know, to, so that neither piece overshadows the other. They're two different propositions. And then for an audience member, it, it's great because you don't go in clue, clueless. You know, you go in with a sense of, okay, I'm seeing this. These are the themes that are drawing these two pieces together. Let's see what that is. And then they can, you know, make their, make their own conclusions. Um, yeah, and I think nothing locks an artist into any genre for life. It's up to the artist to break out of that if they want to. If I want to make a punk rock piece next time I go into the <laughs> studio, well, I think I can own that and just yeah. trust presenters to deal. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I do think it's worth noting that, you know, we, we've spoken a little bit about hip-hop today, but I do think it's important to note that regardless of the fact that both of our works have more or less of a presence of hip-hop in our work, that's not how Tangent has put us together and I have to say that I appreciate that I think mm-hmm. um, uh, I think it was Sean Katz who wrote a review on InMix Company last year who, who used the term substance and style um, and I really like that Tangent took that and, and ran with that because I do think that that, that is a, a parallel between our works that I feel very comfortable with mm-hmm. is that we're, we're young choreographers uh, we're both co-artistic directors you know there are two artistic directors and choreographers in each one and we are both concerned, I think, with balancing substance and style. We're not artists who are only in substance or only in style. I think both of those elements are important to our work, and I think that that's going to be um, that's that's going to be seen, and uh, an audience will be re- able to register those parallels very clearly. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. One of the interesting things that um, is easy to miss, I feel, for for this presentation of your show is that it's in collaboration with Pop Montreal. And that's something that Tangente started doing a few years ago. Um, and it, you know, in a way, it, it helps bring in visibility from uh, an audience that might not necessarily know about dance, go see dance. Um, is this something that you've discussed with the, with the presenter, in this case, Tangente? Um, you know, how it's going to be advertised to the, the Pop Montreal uh, public, um, also how, you know, why exactly they're doing that. Is this something that's been discussed with Tangent? The collaboration itself was discussed, but I think the nature of the relationship falls more into their court. Um, I think both, be, both companies have um, certain advertising mandates, um, and I think we all and Tangent meet on certain points, but I don't know that Pop Montreal is one of them. Um, uh, I know that you know, like we, we all have our own contacts who we want to reach out to, and and people and methods to get people to the show. And like I said, part of part of that quote unquote list uh, overlaps with Tangent, and in in the publicity of the of the show, we do collaborate with them. But the nature of the relationship with Pop Montreal. Um, stays between Tangente and Pop Montreal. Um, One thing that I'm excited about is that people with a Pop Montreal pass can come to the shows at Tangente for free next exactly. week. So if anyone has bought a pass, then they can come. Yeah. Um, it's a really exciting collaboration that I think is in development. Um, but it's a great idea to bring yeah. the music world into the dance world and create some more cross-pollination there. Totally. I think there's a lot we can share and uh, mm-hmm. 
I look forward to discovering that festival a little more too. Yeah. I think it can bring a lot. Uh, I just wanted to get into uh, crowdsource funding mm. because um, Floor Rider and Tonic have a campaign currently. Yes. And another parallel between the companies, last season for the mm-hmm. premiere of In Mixed Company, Parts and Labor Donalds had one. Yeah. So um, how about we just hear a little bit about Floor Rider and Tonic's initiative mm-hmm. and give you a little bit of time to speak about that. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> uh, we're trying to raise $5,000 right now to pull off this um, reprise of this work. Um, there aren't a lot of grants out there for this type of endeavor, presenting the same work at the same space. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, yeah, we're not touring. It's kind of hard maybe to justify, although I think it's totally pertinent, um, doing this piece again. And for us, it's a really important time because now that the creation is under our belts, we can focus on things like inviting presenters this time Mm -hmm. and getting our work out there in the world. Um, So we we need more money and able to pay our dancers properly and also afford some photography for the work. Our photography from last year we just did during the dress rehearsal and the lighting is quite dim and it wasn't uh, satisfactory our industry standards. So, yeah, we've uh, launched a crowdsource funding campaign with CapiPal. Uh, if you can check that out online and give us a little donation, it would be so appreciated. Uh, slash Encore, density of a moment slash Encore. Can you speak to your experience with the crowdsource funding campaign last year and how it helped your company yeah. move forward? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we were very lucky to, to reach our goal last year. And, and like Emily's saying now, it, it's, it's a really important coup de pouce um, that can help you get to where you need to get to with these kinds of opportunities, which fit a little outside of the box in terms of uh, granting bodies. Um, Emily is absolutely right that there's not a whole lot out there. Um, I'm also the belief that it, it's important when you're working in, in the art sector to not rely 100% on public funding. Um, so I do, I do think that it's an important practice and that's really what it is. It's a practice to, to get out there and, and ask for money and pitch your ideas and whether it's, um, whether it's with like Indiegogo or Capipal or whether it's going and finding, you know, small businesses who might in some way, again, like with the programmer mentality, uh, draw parallels into your, your creative work or your mandate or just who you are, your identity, um, uh, I think that that's very healthy. Um, we're, we're working not only as artists, but as entrepreneurs as well. Um, and a lot of us young companies are being given the, these kinds of opportunities where we can get our work out there to a larger audience, but we don't necessarily have regular funding coming in. So I, I, th- I think that it's, um, it, it's really fantastic that people are able to contribute to that to all of these hidden costs that aren't necessarily visible like emily was saying from photographers to rehearsal direction to just going back and remounting a work it it takes time it takes work and people work really hard for those things and and oftentimes it's also people who aren't necessarily on stage who uh who are who are needing those resources to help support the work and I think that one thing that's important to keep in mind is that it's not always, you know, you, you see, you see these things on Facebook and, and whatnot, you know, like, oh, my, my campaign, et cetera, et cetera. 
uh, you don't need a hundred dollars. You don't need to give a hundred dollars. You don't need to give two hundred fifty dollars. You know, if I can speak from our own experience, it was it was the the multitude of small donations that really made a, uh, this huge impact in, at the end of the day. That if you've got ten bucks, if you've got twenty bucks to to send a young company to give them a hand, if enough people do that, the goal is met, and you don't need. To, to be scared off, I think, by these things by thinking, well, oh, I'm not going to give $10. They're going to think that, you know, I, I don't really support them. No, those things are really, really appreciated. So mm-hmm. if you see Emily and Genevieve's campaign out there, uh, definitely don't hesitate, even if, you know, it's only a little bit. I think if enough people give a little bit, then for the person on the other end of it, it really does add up. And it's a, it's a really great net of, uh, of support that's out there. Uh, another <laughs> parallel between the two of you, your two companies, is the uh, is the lighting, which I feel is very important to mention because yeah. both of you got uh, to work with Paul Chambers, who um, has a, a very strong signature uh, and is someone who has a, very much a vision, but is also, like from my personal appreciation of what he's done, he's always able to work in tandem with choreographers so that his personal signature doesn't overwhelm the work but rather really shines a spotlight on the qualities of the work how was working with Paul Chambers for these for your pieces how was your experience and how do you feel that uh, you managed together to bring lighting to um, to become an important part of, of the process of the creation of the final product I found working with Paul is so light. It's amazing. You you tell him a little bit about your project and he goes home with that and he thinks about it and he gets into your head and he comes back with a proposition that is very expressive. It's very much his um but is yeah, is exactly that getting into your choreographic work and supporting it and shining light on it. Uh he came up with a lot of ideas that were just Um, making our uh, creation move forward as we were in the creative process. He came up with ideas really early in the process that allowed us to move forward. Uh, in our piece, we're working with um, a lot of uh, columns of light on stage because Genevieve and I had talked about isolating body parts. And he came to us with this idea of a forest of light. And uh, from that idea, that was really early in the cre- creative process, it became a uh, an important anchor point for the aesthetic of the piece uh, and a lot of the meaning of the piece. So his participation was integral to what the piece became. Mm-hmm. Um, working with us, what, what he brought to Inmix Company, I felt was um, the, the presence that the light held in the work was a little more subtle, it w- uh, slightly less defined, I guess, than in Emily and Genevieve's work, where it's really... Uh, It, it's quite defined. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in, in our working relationship, he brought an idea that was uh, a bit more of a, a support to the work than, some, than something that acts as, a, as an element itself of it, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is an interesting uh, thing to take into consideration that he, he's also someone who, who knows when to really bring a very defined presence to the light and when to let the light Um, act as a more of a supporting role in in our context with Paul he was also working as a, a set designer so he was also balancing two roles um, and I think the set if anything was the one that that acted more as a, a defining factor 
Um, I have to I have to agree with Emily that one thing that that makes working with Paul a pleasure is he's the kind of artist again coming back to this idea of drawing parallels who will draw parallels between things that you won't necessarily see so as a collaborator that's always something you look for um, yeah he'll we'll, we'll speak to Paul a bit about what we're looking for and, and, and what the world is essentially that we're trying to set our work in and then he'll go back and, and he comes back not only with the proposition but with really interesting sources to support it uh, whether it's images, whether it's movies and film and uh, music, uh, concerts. Uh, you know, he, he's the kind of guy who really does think outside the box and is true to that term. Um, and will find sources that, that he can then reappropriate um, uh, and transform and bring something new with those things. Um, and, and like you said, working with him is always very light. It's always very um, engaging. Uh, he's someone who really, I think, takes it seriously and has as much fun as possible, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not easy. And not easy. <laughs> and not easy. It's true. Um, and I think that he's done a, done a great job. Hopefully this also is, is going to be a great night for him to show two works side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, two works that I, I believe he's quite proud of mm-hmm. um, and that I think he really went all out on. I think he really did a fantastic job on both pieces. And they show also for him a great versatility in him as an artist. Mm. what he can bring well that's all the time we have for today so Emily Honecker David Albertoth thank you so much for coming to talk to us today uh, just to remind everyone this will be Parts and Labor Dance uh, presenting In Mixed Company and um, Floor Rider and Tonic presenting Danse d'un Moment and that will be on September 18th 19th 20th and 21st at Tangente in Montreal um, Emily, if you wouldn't mind introducing what we'll be hearing right now. Uh, this piece was composed for Densité d'un moment by Jacques Poulain-Denis and was also used in a flash mob last spring uh, organized by Circuit Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much both. Thank Thanks you. for having us.
Dirty Feet is recorded every week at the Montreal Improv Theatre. Check them out at montrealimprov.com. Dirty Feet est produit et animé par Produced and hosted by Alison Burns J.D. Papillon et Stéphanie Morin-Robert. You can find out more about our show at nomoreradio.com Follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet and find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast. Vous pouvez écouter tous nos épisodes sur notre site web ou vous pouvez vous abonner également sur iTunes à notre podcast. Listen to past episodes on website or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. While you're there, be sure to give us a rating and or leave a comment to help us spread the word. Tune in next week for a whole new show.